you for joining us. I'm your host, Simon Dudley, Chief Contrarian for Accession Events. To learn more and for information about the book and other resources, please go to accessionevents.com. Welcome to the show. I do hope you enjoy it. Today, I've got Mark Loney, the CEO of Starleaf. Uh, Mark's been a major part of this video conferencing industry for the last, well, I don't know, I guess we're about to find out, but for a very long time, almost as long as I can remember. And um, we're going to have a chat today about to, to Mark about all things to do with the industry and more importantly, perhaps, about his career, what he's done and how he sees technology changing in the future. So with no further ado, welcome, Mark. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Simon. Um, so to introduce myself, I think Simon's really done it for me, other than, you know, when I'm not being CEO of Starleaf, then, um, you know, I do have a bit of a life outside work. I have, uh, you know, a wonderful partner, two teenage boys. I like getting out on my bicycle when I can. And best of all, I like going sailing with my friends who have a yacht as often as I can get away with. That's me, really. I see. So you're one of these people who borrows other people's yachts. Well, somebody told me that owning a yacht is the equivalent of sitting there with a pile of, of $20 bills just tearing them up. Yeah, I and think it's ten. one up, start the next one. And so I think friends with a yacht is, is much more to my liking than me having a yacht. As I said the other day in a, in a uh, presentation, if it flies, floats or um, functions, rent it by the hour. Sounds like you're going to do the same thing. Yes, absolutely. And for, fortunately, my partners in, in, in the Starleaf adventure uh, don't do things that fly or float <laughs> or, or eat hay. Oh, fair enough. Yes, the four-legged uh, money machines. Yes, it's fair enough. It all sounds very Ted Heath, doesn't it? So um, you've, been, you've been in industry. In fact, you better tell us a bit of background, right? You didn't come out the egg as CEO of Starleaf. So talk us briefly through, how did you get into industry? I, I know that you're an ex-Cambridge graduate. You're kind of famous for that because, let's be honest, most of Starleaf is an ex-Cambridge uh, um, graduate. So tell me, you went off and did some super-duper degree in something ridiculous, and then you came out and did what? Yes, I, I did a degree in engineering at, at Cambridge at Fitzwilliam College, and when I sort of fell out of that, I thought I'd better get myself a job. And um, the first couple of attempts weren't very successful. But um, one, of my one of my friends at university nudged me in the ribs and pointed me at an advert for this crazy company called Madge Networks, who were in a barn uh, just outside of London. So I went along to the evening and met Mark Richer, who I still haven't been able to get away with. So he's our, he's our chairman at, at Starleaf. And he gave me my first job as a hardware engineer at, at Mansion Networks. What, what um, year was that? That was 1990. So to me and you, Simon, that doesn't seem so long ago, but to some of the listeners, that may seem like ancient history. Yes, disturbingly, it is ancient history for all of us, but there you go. That's why this is an audio podcast, not a video one, perhaps. Okay, so from that, you, 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 you went, oh, well, I'll be a hardware engineer now, I'll be CEO of, of uh, not, something not, in the middle there, isn't there? What happened? Yeah, not quite. So um, I spent five years at Madge, had a great time. Um, you know, we were on a great ride from, you know, a fairly early startup when I joined to 
IPO on NASDAQ in 93, uh, company very successful in the token ring um, side of the local area networking market. And, you know, we had absolute blast, um, but there came a time that it was time to move on, do something else. So I then went off with one of my colleagues and we wrote some software, did some consultancy. Um, and Mark Ritchie used to call me up periodically because um, he by then had started another company called Callista. So eventually I stopped saying no to him and went and joined Callista. So Callista did um, technologies relating to phone systems. Um, and just at the end of the 90s, voice over IP was the highest technology and really the early stages of voice over IP. And we ended up um, getting bought by Cisco. We were their um, first acquisition outside the North America, if I, if I remember correctly. Mm. So we ended up as principally an engineering team within the Cisco world, part of the IP telephony business unit. Um, so Cisco had recently acquired Celsius systems who had really the, the, the um, nascent um, PBX, it starts on a PBX, and that has grown into Cisco Unified Communications Manager of today. And you know they did a fantastic job of going from from zero market share to twenty few percent you know, in a matter of of, of ten years. Um, fantastic achievement. So we hung around in the, in the in the voice world in Cisco. We got interested in video, um, but you know the time came where it was difficult to be as innovative as we wanted to be within the confines of Cisco. And so it's time to move on. Uh, and that became uh, time to start another company. We continued the interest in video and started Codian. And that's really where we, we, we developed the knowledge of, of what seemed to be a bizarre market in those days. This is 2003, 2004, where there really was very little competition. It was really Polycom and um, Tamburg. And then there was a new entrance like Codian and Life Size, uh, really trying to you know, innovate and do better products in that space. But it was unique in the sense that, you know, really there was dominance by Tamburg and Polycom. And, you know, there didn't appear to be that much innovation coming out of either of those two in, in, in those days. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, that's when you and I first met when I was at LifeSize, one of the early team at LifeSize, and you were starting Codian. And we needed each other because we both companies were doing high definition. Without a high definition endpoint, you had no market. And without a high definition MCU, we had no scale. So we definitely needed each other. And there were strange parallels like Codian and LifeSize, I seem to remember, picked the same two colors for our logos, and I don't mean orange and blue, I mean the same Pantone numbers, completely irrespective, completely separate from each other, which was very surreal. Um, and I'd been at Polycom, and I think you'd agree that the market had kind of gone moribund. There were two players sitting there with a big, fat, happy duopoly, both of whom thought that making it cheaper would make the market grow. When you, your group and our group both thought that making it a quality people actually wanted to use would make the market grow. I think we were both proven right with varying levels of success, but we'll come back to that. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your story about Codian. So Codian started, started being successful. 
and you, boy, were you, that was a remarkable piece of work. Then what happened? Yeah, it, it was remarkable. Um, and then, you know, we, we grew very rapidly and, you know, there are certain circumstances that meant that, um, you know, we accept an offer from, from Tamburg to acquire Codian. Um, and so we ended up um, in, in Tamburg. And, you, you know, that company had done, you know, an amazing job of, of, of growing over the previous few years and, and continue to grow and very successful uh, sales organization, just going from strength to strength. Um, but again, there came a time where um, it was time to move on. You know, we developed this love of, of business class video and, you know, the value that it brings to organizations. And many of us just know those. Um, but what gets in the way of that is ease of use and, you know, the lack of ease of use, the complexity um, was an abiding frustration to us. And so uh, eventually it became time to, to move on from Tamburg and just do one more startup, um, which is Starleave. And, you know, our driving force was to sort out ease of use. And, you know, subsequent to that is also it's important to be able to deploy things easily and scalably. And then once they're deployed, actually have, you know, the long suffering video team be able to manage it, see what's going on, you know, and, and be able to manage it in a, in a scalable way to enable organizations to go from, you know, a few systems gathering dust in, in their conference rooms for whom, you know, mortals need an IT person to set up their call to you know, systems that can scale through the business, the mortals can walk into a conference room, they can click on a button, make a call, or fire up software on their, their PCs, et cetera, and just call somebody. Now, one of the things I noticed with Starleaf, and, and this isn't a criticism, in fact, I think it's a useful topic to, to uh, explore, is you pivoted a bit. You started with one idea, and then you kind of moved to another, um, and I think I don't remember if you, from a technology point of view, if you pivoted once or twice. It's a pretty standard thing to do, actually. Most startup companies do that. They go, well, we're solving one problem, and then oh, actually, the market's moved, and we we ended up solving another. How's that? And a lot of people haven't done that, but I think it's an important topic to discuss. How easy is that to do? Is it a major? Is it just a technical? Oh, we'll go this way, or is it a cultural change within the business as well? How do you how do you cope with that stuff? I think in our case, so to, to set the scene, we we're really at the beginning of Starleaf, we wanted to solve you know that ease of use problem. And we set out to build a system, you know, the the infrastructure at the center, the endpoints as well. And if you don't have the clients, it's very difficult to to make it easy to use and, and truly integrated. So seven years ago, we set out with that traditional model of build boxes to sit in. Uh, corporations' data centers roll out clients through the organization. And when we first came to market, we, we had made great strides on the ease of use front, and we went out and, and showed our wares to, to our typical large enterprise customers. But it turned out that whilst they liked what they saw, it just wasn't quite distinctive enough to make them purchase it. I mean, all of these organizations 
uh, really had video already. So they had some video estates sat there. And, you know, we found the attitude that they were a bit grumpy about, you know, the amount of money they'd spent on their video estate, you know, how tricky it was to manage and upgrade and all that sort of stuff. But faced with that, if they needed some more, they'd just buy some more from whoever had sold it, sold it to them. They kind of held so their nose and got on with it, really. They didn't feel they had a choice. Yes, and some of them, um, you know, admitted to us they had quite a lot, you know, a big bank, for instance. You know, they were a big video player. They had lots of video, but really they'd reached saturation point. You know, they wanted to, these guys aspired to roll out video to every desktop in the place, 60,000. And the way they did business, which I don't happen to agree with, but this was their etiquette was, you wouldn't call somebody on video. You'd somehow arrange to go meet in a, in a, in a virtual meeting room. So that meant they needed a conference port per employee. And the cost of those was just so phenomenally great that they'd reached saturation point. They couldn't scale it out further. Okay. That's a, that's a digression. We'd really reached the point where we'd done some great stuff. Uh, we had quite a broad system, but we weren't distinctive enough. And so really it was a case of, um, as you say, with many startups, you, you do something great and then you have to learn from the market and figure out, okay, where do we go next? And as we were figuring that out, there was a lot of talk about cloud this, cloud that. And, you know, in many technology sectors, cloud is, is way further advanced than in the video world. But we got to considering, you know, could this be, you know, the way forward for us to make us truly distinctive, even though we're at the very early stages of, of video as a service provided from, from the cloud. And so in terms of technology, we were very fortunate. There was very little we had to, to throw away. Uh, there was the odd thing we had to, to stop doing. Um, but a lot of the, the uh, technology we developed, which we developed from the ground up, it was all our own code, we could actually reuse in our as-a-service model. So it wasn't as traumatic as, as uh, it could have been um, mm. with different circumstances. So really it was difficult because we had you know, some customers and you know, I personally got on a plane and went around and visited some of them to explain this change. You know, they just bought this, this shiny new system from this company called Starleaf, and there was me turning up, explaining to them, well, sorry, you know, our model is changing. And of course, you know, we could support them through the cloud, but being in the early stages, they weren't necessarily thrilled by the prospect of being, you know, the video from cloud trailblazers. But yes. we, got, we got through it. You know, culturally within the organisation, no change. You know, we, we all get out of bed in the morning and, and have lots of fun doing, um, you know, innovation for, uh, for the right reason, you know, to deliver that, that value to, to customers. So culturally it wasn't, it wasn't tricky. Well, it sounds to me like you're in a position where, although you, you, you pivoted from a marketing and sales perspective, but not from an underlying technology perspective. So much of the mainly much of your organization is engineering based rather than sales and marketing. And as a result, you, you probably didn't have to just change the bit of front really. 
the yeah, it's interesting. of the ship rather than rebuild the ship. Yeah, we did. But then, of course, when you're doing it, if you're trying to build a global infrastructure for delivering video, then actually you discover there's a whole lot more you need to do. And um, I'm sure I could, you know, set you up with somebody else's style that could, could spend six hours explaining that, you know, in, in some sort of level of overview of what that entails. But it really meant we, we had a lot to do to really get to the point where we could stand up a cloud that was robust, resilient, and, you know, manageable from our network operation centre. You know, it's funny, this industry is now, you know, cloud is really the, the buzzword of the entire video conferencing industry today. And I seem to remember that three years ago, everyone said it was basically impossible. And, and it's strange how, we're going to talk about this later in detail, about how the rate of compute change, the rate of, um, of change within industry now, because of how fast compute power is changing, we go from an industry, any industry that can go from basically impossible to trivial in less than 10 years. And now, I mean, anyone who's sort of new to the video industry would sit there and go, well, of course, video conferencing should be a cloud application. That would be, it's distributed, there's lots of people, it's a lot of compute required. Well, of course, you would do it in the cloud. But those of us who've actually been through the mill go, my word, cloud actually works for video conferencing? I mean, it, to me, it still remains an amazing experience that this stuff works faultlessly now. I mean, all of it does. Where five years ago, using the internet for video conference call was common. Ten years ago, it was risky stuff. You, you never even thought, oh, yeah, we'll put all of the MCUs in the cloud. Are you kidding me? No way. Which brings us on to the next point. So you've gone through, you're a perfect example of someone who's gone through the transition from token ring to, well, they're not transit, but you've, you did the token ring world. So you did token ring versus ethernet. You did PBXs of TDM type technology to IP. You did uh, video conferencing from, sand, uh, from standard def to high definition. And now you've moved from on-prem to cloud. You know, your career is a perfect example of what I call an accession event or a series of them where an accession event for the listeners who haven't read my book um, are, is, is the concept that what happens in industries is every so often you end up having a situation where the success criteria in that market is so fundamentally changed that the people who used to win will fail because the answer they now give the users isn't the answer they want anymore. So you've gone through, what, four of those? I'm interested in your experiences, which of those was the most disruptive? And, and you know, it's very easy, or for many of us, we think a certain way, and then it's very hard to suddenly go, everything I know, or I thought I knew, no, is no longer true, and I have to think about, what success looks like again, you patently, and I'm not going to blow smoke too hard here because the next question asks you about your biggest failure in business. But um, this question is, how, how have you managed to cope with that? Because the reality is most people haven't. So I'm interested in, in how you get your brain to work and to which of those four that you've been involved in, in your experience, was the most disruptive. I think the most disruptive was managed networks, but you know, for me, it was quite easy because it was a case of move on and, and do something different. But 
I saw that, um, you know, Token Ring in its heyday was a fantastic business, high margins, great business. But when there was the advent of, of 100 megabit Ethernet, you know, the company as a whole found itself, you know, at that inflection point where Token Ring was, was going away. And, you know, the organization ultimately needed to find a new business to, to go after and, and survive. And, you know, it's with great sadness that um, although I'd left and, and many of my colleagues had left, the company hasn't prospered by finding um, somewhere to tra transition to. You know, in the early days, they'll talk about ATM to the desktop. Um, <laughs> and, you know, to, to many of us, you know, at the lower levels within the company, it just didn't seem like a goer because, you know, we were at the sharp end of implementation and it was just overly complicated and therefore costly versus something like 100 megabit Ethernet, which was just fundamentally, um, in some ways, less of a, a good solution, but it just worked and it was cheap and it was simple. So I suppose that's the hardest one, although I wasn't at the sharp end of trying to find a solution. Mm. Madge had its heyday and then it sort of withered on the vine and eventually um, that came to, to an end. Some, some people have said that it's actually often, in fact, I've said among, but many others who actually know what they're talking about, I've also said it's often easier to start a new business, even with all the same people in it potentially, but maybe sitting in different seats than it is to try and reinvent an existing business. You've been there, right, often with the same people. Would you agree? Or would you say that it's actually easier to change from within? I, I think in some cases um, it is easier to, to close it down and, and, and start afresh. Fortunately, in the, in the Starleaf um, transition, you know, as I said, we built a lot of really useful uh, intellectual property, a lot of technology, so, you know, it was more a, a, a mindset change as where, you know, completely different direction, but fortunately had, you know, a lot of that same technology within. So that was actually, that was actually quite straightforward. I think what's really difficult is, you know, questioning where you are and realizing that if you continue to do what you're doing, you're not going to be successful. And I, I would agree with that too. I've I done a lot of research and on in this very topic, and it's it's amazing how many people seem incapable of understanding that the answers they've had that have worked great for them for a period of time in the past aren't the right answers anymore. Many people would seem to rather ignore it and hope it goes away than than go. Everything I know is nonsense. I need to relearn. It's it's. Even for very intelligent people, it can be surprisingly tough. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that. I think for us, it was easier in a way because we hadn't got that many customers. We didn't have a, a large installed base. You know, we were still in that startup mode. And I, I don't remember who described a startup like this, but I thought it's, it's very apt. You know, a startup is a business looking for a, a working business model. And we were still in that phase. It wasn't obvious that, well, we knew we hadn't got one. I think the hard part is, is in, in that startup mode is figuring out whether if you keep doing what you're doing, 
it'll come good because obviously it's always hard starting out you know finding the first customer and then the next 10 it's always difficult so the difficult thing is discerning between we just need to keep trying versus uh it's not going to work we need to try something different and yes so um. so in you know in my case you asked um how do you do it? I think, you know, I'm very fortunate that I'm surrounded by a lot of smart people and a lot of people with, with experience of, of business and going through difficult times and trying to figure out how to fix things and, you know, coming up with lots of ideas. I'm surrounded by ideas and a few of them are actually genius. So that really helped. If it was just me sat, sat in isolation, then... Uh, it would be an utter disaster. But it's really that team of people and part of our culture is just constant debate. And I'm surrounded by people. I could pick any topic and I could go find people who are passionate enough to actually get on and debate it. And I think that's a very powerful way forward because as long as everyone's willing to listen to reason and, and argue you know, a case, we'll end up making a better decision. I think that's excellent. There's a concept the Israeli defense force use, uh, which I talk about a lot in my work, uh, called the tense man, where what they do is they realize the Israelis have not exactly had the greatest 20th century. Well, they've had the greatest 20th century in some senses, but they've also had a pretty bleak one, right? I don't think anyone would deny that. But one of the things that they did was realize that they would fall into groupthink a little too often. And they codified the concept of not falling into groupthink, call it tense man. The tense man is this idea that if you have 10 men, it could be anyone, 10 people in a room and you all agree on a course of action, one person's job is to come up with the contrarian view. Now, whether they believed that that contrarian view was true or not is not relevant. What mattered was that they went out and looked for reasons to find out that the other nine were wrong. And then they come back and try and convince everybody of their other position. It doesn't sound, it sounds to me like you've built a culture over 20 years with you know, Will McDonald and, um, and Kev and with Mark Loney and a bunch of other people in your business where you do that naturally. But I would argue most companies need a contrarian in them, uh, a role I have probably played once or twice in my career. Um, but I think that people need those, those sort of, no, no, just because everyone says it and just because the CEO says it's true doesn't make it true. Uh, I think it's important. And I've very, always been very impressed with your organisation and with your team. I mean, your team just change, changes company name every few years, does a slightly different thing. But I'm impressed with how you've done that. Well, I think it just comes naturally. Um, there is one very memorable um, board meeting where I forget the topic now, but we all came at it with that same view. And we actually said... That's never happened before. There's something wrong. Okay, let's not just blindly agree with each other. Let's actually put the contrarian view. And so then we did all come up with a contrarian view, perhaps of different slants on it. And in the end, of course, we, we were right in the first place. And we, we of course, of course you It was a bit of a culture shock where we all had the same view and there was nothing to discuss. So we made a point of, of discussing it. So yeah, we don't need that 10th man because we can never get uh, very many people to agree at the, at the start of any discussion. 
and it, I, th I absolutely agree it's it's very healthy and just that you know openness within the organization and the willingness to um, you know debate with anyone you know I think we do a much better job because lots of people are interested enough to get involved in in lots of different areas of the business rather than okay this is my part of the business you leave it to me you know in different silos where it's there running nicely. I, I would agree with that one of the things I've also noticed about your organization and this has been true throughout your time whichever organization I've worked with you in over the years is you and all your senior management team are always on your booth you know you go to any show you're there well that's not true most of the manufacturers their senior management are either locked up in a room with the gilded customers right who are going to say the right thing because the sales guy wouldn't put them in the room with the ceo unless they said the right thing or they never go to the shows at all because they're all certain of their position and they sit at home in an ivory tower and i do wonder if that helps you too you get the bloke who didn't have a good experience with your products and there's always one of them and the opportunity for you to hear the raw story, not the, you know, it, it, there's that old story of it's, it's crap and it stinks, says the sales guy, says the customer. The sales guy says it's, um, it's manure and it's strong and senior management say it's fertilizer and it's powerful. And the CEO goes, everything is good. It, you don't get, you know, by cutting out all those filters in the middle, it's probably a lesson for many senior managers stroke CEOs. Go and meet some people who you're not meant to. None of this. I wrote recently on LinkedIn about um, does the queen think everywhere smells of fresh paint? Right? The queen never has an encounter that she wasn't, someone hadn't already vetted. And I suspect that's probably the same for too many CEOs in all of industry. They're protected quotes from the real world, which means that they become ever more separated from it. So look, I've, I've blown smoke up you and aren't you wonderful and you're great and all that. And actually, I think you've done a great job over the years, but you must have screwed up. So I always like to ask my guests, what's the most, you know, you look at back at it and you go, oh my word, what was I thinking? We, we all learn more from, they say success, you don't learn anything from success, you learn everything from failure, which sounds to me like that story about, well, if you get crapped on by a pigeon, it's lucky. It isn't, it just makes you feel better, perhaps. So. Tell me, what's your most horrible screw-up? Well, um, it's a really difficult question. And I think there are just many, many screw-ups with the benefit of hindsight. You know, you wouldn't have done something that way. You know, we wouldn't have started out doing an on-premise system if we'd uh, had the benefit of hindsight. Um, so I, I find it difficult to really pick on anything. I think part of the culture is... Um, you know, get on and do stuff. And, you know, we all say, well, we know, we know very little, you know, and perhaps in three months time, we'll know a little bit more, but still we'll know very little. So I think it's that acceptance of, um, you know, do something given the best available information, proceed, and then just, just deviate. So sort of builds into our culture is, well, we're going to get it wrong. So let's at least do something and learn how it's wrong so we can improve it. You know, commercial models for selling, um, you know, video conferencing services and soft clients. You know, we got it wrong in the beginning. The important thing is to get on and do it and then 
that's the only way we know of to find out how it's wrong is to go try it. And then customers are pretty open about telling you um, that they don't like it. And, and many of them will explain why they don't like it. So I think it's just that we're, we're sort of used to getting things wrong and we sort of joke about it a lot. You know, when discussing, okay, we've got this new category of product, how are we gonna price it? And we sort of joke a bit saying, well, whatever we do first, no matter how much we've debated it, it's gonna be wrong. So let's at least debate it, get something out, and then we'll learn from it. Sure. I think, you know, there's that old joke about the guy that it's better to be the infantryman who walks through the minefield and every so often gets blown up and then dusts himself down and keeps walking forward than it is be the general who sits back at base and tries to work out a thousand ways of getting through the minefield but never steps foot on it. So, Mark, you know, disasters are useful and certainly I, I love the idea of you just knowing that you've got to continually move forward and that you sometimes get it wrong and you just use that as a learning experience. I mean, I think that's what else can you do? So let's talk about the next thing, right? The video conferencing industry. Let's just do something as simple as five years. The whole idea that you could truly know what's going to happen in five years is crazy, but let's try it. Your vision, paint me a vision. 98% market share for Starleaf maybe, but, but perhaps more importantly, let's talk about what, what would a user experience be like and what would a, an administrator's experience of video conferencing be like in five years from now or, or whatever other angle you want to go with this? Well, I think, you know, change is definitely coming. Video from the cloud is a wave that's going to hit. You know, it hasn't hit yet, um, but it is coming. And so... You know, the days of buying that expensive on-premise stuff, having to hire smart people, train them up to be able to operate it. You know, the economies just aren't there. The economies, the agility, the flexibility of moving that to the cloud will dominate. Now, I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but it's, it's definitely coming. You know, in many industries, it's already, it's already happened. That's not to say that, um, you know, many people listening to that may say what I'm, uh, what I'm saying is going to happen is Microsoft Skype for Business is going to be gone by the wayside or, or Cisco CUCM. That's not going to happen. There will still be, you know, on-premise um, equipment, but done with a different architecture. Really, you've got that, that central server um, with with clients connected to it. I'm probably straying into to, too much technical detail, but trust me on this, there will still be a place for on-premise, but there will be richer connectivity between organisations. So in the voice world, the transition's been made from, you know, TDM connectivity between um, your London site and your Singapore site but today you don't have that connectivity um, for video. And that will come and that will be delivered through the cloud. So there'll be a whole bunch of people with, you know, clients that just are uh, registered straight to the cloud. There will be larger organizations with some on-premise equipment, but what will unite them all is that connectivity through the cloud. Okay, and so what's the user experience look like? Are we talking, 4K on your iPhone, or are we talking um, 
telepresence room systems or are we talking everyone's got to sit at their desk on a laptop or all of the above? I think we will have lots of clients that will meet certain needs. So on my MacBook, I will obviously have a client. On my iPad, if I still have one, which I probably won't, I'll have a client. On my iPhone 9 Plus, then I'll have a client. But it doesn't matter whether it's 4K or 1080. It really doesn't matter. We've got to the point where it's good enough. You know, we've got enough resolution. I don't need more. You know, except for niche niche applications. I, so, I, would, I would agree with that. We're clients, in the Netflix model. Convenience has beaten quality, ultimately. You've got to be above a certain level, but once it's above that level, then you're, you're golden. It doesn't matter. Exactly. But I think the one change that will come that's not perhaps as obvious is how we use video. I don't know. Well, I do know how it's happened, but what I don't agree with is the widely held view that video is for multi-person meetings. It's not for one-to-one calls. You know, if I want to call Simon, I'll pick up my phone and I'll call him on voice. If I'm having a meeting with Simon and Mark and Will, then I'll arrange a video meeting. You know, that is just, to me, utter nonsense. Why, you know, if, if why would we do that? Why would we settle for that? No, I would, I would love to just um, use my clients and I'll call somebody. If they are video capable, I'll get video. If they're not, I'll get voice. It should be that simple. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of an absurdity for those uh, on the podcast. Listen to this. Right, Mark, you're in Cambridge right now, Cambridge, England. I'm in Austin, Texas. If I'd rung you on the phone, we would have had a low-quality experience and it would have cost money. Where we did it over video and the quality of the experience is fantastic. Uh, you podcasters just get the audio component of this today. But I can tell you now, the quality of the picture from Mark is excellent. And he's plainly has been out on that boat a bit because he's got his, his hair's gone blonde in the sunshine. Um, and it's free. And it, it still staggers me that people don't wake up every morning and demand this. Uh, it's interesting to me. I, I do wonder if the consumer space will drive it. I suspect it will. But we know why it's happened. It's because the systems to date have been so complicated that you need somebody expert to set something up. So, of course, you're not going to have a point-to-point call set up by somebody else. So by making it simpler, point-to-point usage will, will rapidly grow. And, you know, so many times I hear, well, video is just meetings. I need a virtual meeting room. I'll dial in there and I'll wait for somebody to join me. You know, what I love about our business and being a service business is we have great statistics of usage and every quarter we do a company update and as well as putting up revenue numbers which are clearly important you know everyone gets fed up with me pointing out that my favorite slide is not revenue but it's usage you know the growth of that usage and you know, keeping customers happy and providing valuable services. But what's remarkable about that is the split between multi-person conferences and point-to-point calls. And on our cloud, across our cloud globally, 75% of those minutes of, of video are point-to-point. And that's how it should be. That, that accords with reality. Not, you know, 100% is, is into meeting rooms of which... I don't know how many percent are just two people, but that's a crazy model. 
you know, if you said to me, Simon, uh, let's have a voice call, you know, call into my Meet Me audio bridge, you know, we, we just wouldn't do that, would we? No, no, it's a fair point. That's an interesting statistic. Okay. So let's talk about something else. Uh, you've got teenage boys. I've got teenage boys. I personally am rather terrified about what kind of work environment they're going to end up in because so many jobs are going to go away over the next 20 years or so as artificial intelligence and automation just replaces so much work. If you've got, you must think about this anyway, I hope you do. What would you recommend to millennials, right? We've got millennials joining, hopefully on the podcast, listening to this stuff, listening to a seasoned executive within the industry or two in this call. What do you say to them? You know, you've got young people join your company. How do they build careers in a world where the rate of change is so fast that by the time they've even implemented some new technology, it's probably out of date. But what advice would you give? Well, my principal advice to all of all people entering the workforce is do your best to find something you're passionate about. If you can, and I know it's, it's, it's difficult because for some it's, it's, it's a long journey to find that passion, but if you can find something you're passionate about, then really you're doing your hobby during the week and somebody's, uh, you know, keeping you cold, fed with soft drinks and food and the lights are on and you're getting paid. You know, doing your hobby during the week sets you so far ahead of your peers if they're not genuinely passionate about what you're doing. You know, for them, it's, it's go to work and, you know, get paid, then have fun when you're outside of work. If you can combine fun and work, that's the most powerful thing. And then, you know, I think if you can find that, then even though progress is fast, you'll just keep up because it's fun. Okay. Uh, stakeholders in your business. You know, you've got plenty of them. You've got shareholders, probably. You've got employees, you've got customers, you've got resellers. If you had to pick, I know all of them are, everyone is equally important, but no, they're not. Who's the one who really matters? Who's the one that you wake up in the morning and go, we need to keep this group happy? Customers, of course. You know, without, it's, it, obviously the reason we do it is to have somewhere fun to go when we get out of bed in the morning. But ultimately, you know, we're doing it to provide value to our customers and to provide products and services that they'll keep coming back to buy more of. And, you know, they fund the business going forward. And so they have to be kept happy. Okay. And I think as part of, you know, keeping them happy, you know, that's fulfilling for all parts of the business. That's what really drives us is happy customers. We've, we've innovated with them in mind to deliver something that's, not there for technology's sake, but it's for their sake, giving them value, you know, in their business lives day in, day out. Okay. Uh, you wake up at three in the morning in a cold sweat. What are you, what are you panicking about? Yeah, I, I'm very fortunate that I sleep well. Usually the panic is because I'm going to have to go and do a podcast with Simon Dudley. <laughs> but apart from that, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm surrounded by, you know, a very smart team, lots of experience. Everyone's incredibly smart. And so it's a team game. So no matter what um, challenges come our way, 
you know, we will get on and, and find a solution. Now, as CEOs have a, a propensity to all go mad over time. Right? They, it's, it's the nature of the beast, you know, from Margaret Thatcher to Stalin. I don't think either were, were CEOs exactly, but we all know that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. How do you, because many don't, how do you stay grounded? What's your, what's your magic? If indeed you do, I mean, you could turn around to me and say, I'm having a Gulfstream 6 delivered this afternoon and it's gold-plated on the inside. I mean, maybe you have gone mad, but assuming you think that you haven't, what, what do you do that keeps you sane? Well, again, it's that set of people around me who are all passionate, will all debate things. And strangely enough, they're not shy about telling me I'm an idiot and I'm wrong. They tell me that, you know, almost daily. Uh, and that's okay. So I don't really have the chance to, to sit there in my office, um, you know, looking Inflating through. Inflating your own ego. Yeah. I loving just, on your own balloon. I don't get a chance to do that because they're all very happy to explain to me. You know, you know how it is, Simon. You go and talk to somebody and they, you think you know a bit about what you're talking about. They sort of roll their eyes and they're very patient with you and they explain you know, how you've, you don't understand. But that's okay. Well, that's what eye-rolling meant. I didn't know that. I assumed, I assumed it meant they were pleased to see me. <laughs> oh dear, I may need to reconsider a number of my uh, professional relationships. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Uh, I've got to say, it's been a pleasure. It re- truly has been a pleasure having you on. Is there anything else you want to add or, you know, thoughts for our enormous listenership about the industry or you or, you know, advice you would give? I think I would just like everyone to, you know, if, if, if somebody listening knows that video conferencing is difficult to use, unreliable and expensive, go and reevaluate that. It doesn't need to be. And in the modern world, there are, you know, ways that uh, you can use video in your business for uh, a, a modest amount of money and get great value from it. You know, just the way we work as, as an organisation you know, lots of remote workers, offices around the world. You know, the value of being able to see the whites of somebody's eyes, uh, see their their body language. I know it's very cliched, but it's actually real. So go think about that, go examine it, and you won't regret it. Fair enough. Mark Loney, CEO of Starleaf, I wanted to thank you again for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. I do hope our listeners uh, enjoyed it. We would love some feedback. And this will be part of a whole series of CEO interviews in the AV, VC and IT industry that we'll be doing over the coming months. So thanks for listening. And we look forward to hearing you next time.